This is episode number 286, The Role of Anger in Self-Compassion with Dr. Kristen Neff. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. There's been actually a lot of research on self-compassion in athletics. It's really useful for athletes, but athletes are afraid of self-compassion because they really think they need to be really hard and harsh with themselves to perform at their best. And what we know is it's actually the opposite. So if you're an athlete, of course, you have to have really high standards for yourself. It doesn't mean you accept a subpar performance, but you accept yourself, even if your performance isn't where you'd like it to be. So what happens if you're an athlete, you beat yourself up and say, I'm lame, I can't do this. Well, first of all, um, you lose confidence in yourself and that undermines your ability to do your best. You create performance anxiety, which also undermines your ability to do your best. You may create like ego defensiveness. You may not be willing to see actually where you are making mistakes because it's gonna, you don't like to think badly of yourself. Really, this is all about performance and well-being and all of the facets that are involved. Today, I welcomed back Dr. Kristen Neff, a pioneer and researcher in self-compassion. I last had her on the show in 2017, that is linked in the show notes, that was all about tender self-compassion and her book, Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself. And for this week's episode, I had the opportunity to reconnect with Kristen, doing a deeper dive into self-compassion and talking about her latest book, Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive. The aspects of fierce self-compassion are about to protect, provide, and motivate, where tender self-compassion is more about kindness, common humanity, and mindfulness. Fierce self-compassion gives women the tools to stand up for themselves in things like the Me Too movement and just how to survive in a patriarchal society where women are socialized to not express anger, are not express, are not socialized to express, quote, negative emotions and stand up for themselves. Being able to find your voice and say that something isn't right is a huge part of self-compassion. Dr. Kristen F. is a leader in the field of self-compassion research, creating a scale to measure the construct almost 20 years ago. And with her colleague, Dr. Chris Germer, she has developed an empirically supported training program called Mindful Self-Compassion, and she also co-authored the Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook. She is currently an associate professor of educational psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. In today's episode, we tackled some pretty big topics. We talked about how you can use self-compassion to boost your self-worth and why self-esteem is not a good way to measure your self-worth. We talked about what is fear self-compassion and how does that work in athletic and competitive environments. We talked about the emotions associated with the different types of self-compassion, how to get angry appropriately and express anger, and what listening to your anger tells you. We also talked about sexual assault and self-compassion, and I was horrified to find out that a fourth of women have been sexually assaulted. We also talked about the avoidance of difficult emotions and what we can do about that. We talked about reframing versus acceptance, and then strategies for practicing self-compassion so that you can use these in your own life. Having the courage to say no to something is one of the best forms of self-compassion that we can do for ourselves as women, but also just as people. If you're enjoying this podcast, you'll probably enjoy my weekly newsletter that comes out every single Monday, and it's all about performance and well-being, just like this podcast. The newsletter this week was about how to practice sympathetic joy for others whenever you feel envy or jealousy. I spend a lot of time learning and researching a topic every single week so that I can put it in my newsletter for you. And we always appreciate it when you rate, review, and subscribe to this show and share it with your friends as it helps it reach others. So thanks so much for your support. Thanks so much for being a listener. And huge thanks to those of you who are supporting my work financially with a few bucks a month on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show, where all of that money goes to paying my audio producer and my assistant to make sure that this podcast sounds and looks great. So let's get into this episode with Dr. Kristen Neff. Dr. Neff, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Sonia. Glad to be here again. Yeah, I guess I should say welcome back. Um, the first time we recorded <laughs> was actually in 2017. 
And it's really fun to get to talk to you again because you have a newer book. I think it came out last year, right? Uh, yes. Last summer. Yeah. Yeah. Fierce self-compassion. So for people who haven't heard our first episode, can you kind of give us a primer on tender self-compassion and then move into what fierce self-compassion is? Yes. Well, self-compassion is basically compassion turned inward. It means being kind, warm, supportive toward yourself and remembering that part of being human means making mistakes and encountering difficulty in life. And also mindfulness. In other words, being willing to turn toward and kind of face your pain as opposed to fighting it endlessly or or trying to um, ignore it. And so typically when people think about self-compassion, they think about self-acceptance. This is what I like to call the tender side of self-compassion, the ability to just be with ourselves, to soothe ourselves, to calm ourselves when we're upset, to accept the fact that we're flawed human beings worthy of kindness like everyone else. But what I started realizing is people didn't understand that self-compassion isn't always soft and gentle. Sometimes compassion can be fierce. I like to call it mama bear compassion, right? So tender self-compassion is mother, gentle, soothing, accepting. Mama bear is fierce, active, powerful. Uh, And part of the reason I came to see that this was so necessary was the Me Too movement, right? The Black Lives Matter movements. These are powerful, fierce movements that are self-compassion movements. Compassion is concerned with the alleviation of suffering. So saying, hey, you aren't going to harm me. I count too. This is really an act of self-compassion, but it, it takes the fierce and active form. So acceptance is more about acceptance of the person, whereas the action is more changing either behaviors or situations that are causing harm. And we, we really need both. Yeah, I actually have a note here. I wrote acceptance of self versus acceptance of actions and how those are different. Right. Yeah. Behaviors and situations, right? So for instance, dealing with burnout. So self-compassion has been shown to be good for burnout. Part of it is kind of accepting yourself, soothing and calm yourself in the midst of all your stress. But that doesn't mean you should just like accept your situation. If you're being overworked and underpaid, you also need to try to change the external situation in order to alleviate your suffering. So so it's always both acceptance and change. They go hand in hand. It's like yin and yang. I talk about that a lot in my book, Yin and Yang. Yin is more the, the gentle accepting energy. Yang is more the forceful, um, active energy. And if you don't have both, you're out of balance. Yeah. I wanted to ask you actually, cause most people listening to this podcast are interested in athletics or they are athletes in some way. How does compassion and self-compassion apply in competitive environments? Yeah. So actually I have a dissertation student right now who's writing up her study. She developed a self-compassion training program for oh, wow. NCAA athletes. There's been actually a lot of research on self-compassion in athletics. Um, It's really useful for athletes, but athletes are afraid of self-compassion because they really think they need to be really hard and harsh with themselves to perform at their best. And what we know is it's actually the opposite, right? So if you're an athlete, of course, you have to have really high standards for yourself. It doesn't mean you accept a subpar performance, but you accept yourself even if your performance isn't where you'd like it to be, right? So what happens if you're an athlete, you beat yourself up and say, I'm lame, I can't do this. Well, first of all, um, you lose confidence in yourself and that undermines your ability to do your best. You create performance anxiety, which also undermines your ability to do your best. You may create like ego defensiveness. You may not be willing to see actually where you are making mistakes because it's gonna, you don't like to think badly of yourself. So what happens for athletes with self-compassion? It's kind of like, yeah, okay, So first of all, it kind of does work like a coach screaming his or her head off at you. They do something right. It kind of works to get short term compliance. But in the long term, it backfires because if it creates a lot of anxiety, it's going to actually make it harder to do your best. So if you think of it as a coach, it's like, first of all, it gives really direct feedback. This is working. This is not working. I mean, if you're compassionate to yourself, you aren't going to pretend your performance is okay when it's not. But again, the bottom line is you're okay even though your performance needs some work. And what that does is it gives you a sense of safety to first of all say, okay, well, everyone makes mistakes, everyone fails. What can I learn from this? How can I do better next time? So for athletes, for instance, if you're like, let's say my dissertation student, she plays basketball. If you're playing basketball and you miss a shot, and maybe it's like a really important free throw and you miss it and you beat yourself up, 
well, then you're like out of the game for trying to get your head back. But if you say, okay, well, it happens. I'll just keep going. It's okay. Everyone, everyone missed shots. Then it kind of allows you to keep in the game and give you the motivation you need to keep trying. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of research that shows it's actually a, a much more effective way to motivate yourself than with criticism. Yeah, I had um, Ethan Cross on the show. He had, yeah, talking about emotional regulation. And those are just for people who didn't hear that one and about self-talk and ways that you can work on that and have more self-compassionate self-talk, especially in competitive environments. And this kind of brings me to something that you brought up in, I think, both of your books. And it's self-esteem versus self-compassion and how yes. there's there's kind of a hierarchy there. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, well, so you might say that a sense of self-worth comes both from self-compassion and self-esteem, but their sources is very different. So with self-compassion, it's like we recognize that we're unconditionally worthy just because we're a flawed human being. All human beings are intrinsically worthy of compassion, care, kindness. Self-esteem is a judgment or an evaluation of worthiness. In other words, I may be worthy, I may not be worthy. <laughs> and typically that judgment is based on things like, uh, do other people like me? Do I look the way I want to look? Am I successful at the things that I care about, right? And if we aren't, then our self-esteem takes a hit. So our self-esteem can be unstable. It's only as good as our latest success. And then the other thing about self-esteem is it tends to be comparative, right? It's not okay to be average. We have to be special and above average to have self-esteem. So we're constantly jockeying for a position compared to other people. And that can lead to things like bullying or other nasty behaviors where self-compassion, it's like feeling connected to others. I'm a flawed human being. The other people are flawed human beings. No one's better than anyone else in the, in the sense that we're all worthy of a compassionate response. So the research shows it's, it's a much more stable and healthy source of self-worth. I mean, self-esteem in itself is not bad, right? By judging yourself positively, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that a lot of people use unhealthy ways in order to judge themselves positively, like I got to look perfect or everyone has to like me, which can lead to real like inauthenticity and uh, other problems. Yeah, there's a lot of issues with like hanging your self-worth to a lot of different way, external validations, especially ones that you may not be able to control. Yes, exactly. Like getting older, tell me about it, right? <laughs> Things like that, right? So this culture values youth and beauty. And as you get older, it's it's a big an issue for a lot of women, especially women, because obviously they society treats men and women differently. And so really, if you invest your self-esteem in, again, what other people think of you or how you look, or again, your ability to perform at the top all the time, then your self-esteem is going to take a hit when circumstances change. And so self-compassion is much more stable and it's really intrinsic. It comes from the inside, not the outside. Yeah. And I think something that's really interesting is that, well, you, your book is actually about geared for women because women struggle more with self-compassion. But I would say that in general, probably most people don't unconditionally accept and love themselves without putting in some work. Yeah. So in terms of two, two part question, number one, like how can we help our kids start with a place of come from a place of unconditional self-love and self-compassion? And then number two, like what practices can people put into place to, to practice that in their own lives? Yeah. Well, so uh, really the best way to teach our kids about self-compassion is a, to treat them compassionately and B to treat ourselves compassionately. Right. So with children, if they get the message. So in terms of how you relate to your children, you can you really do need that dual message. I love you unconditionally. You can, you can fail your school grades and I still love you. But compassion isn't just about loving someone unconditionally. It's also wanting the best for someone. So doing what you can to help them achieve their best. Right. So it's like, OK, I still love you. even though you failed your math grade, but I really want you to do better so you can go to college and fulfill your dreams. How can I help? Is that a helping attitude? And so children, and we have research that shows this, children who feel unconditionally accepted and supported by their parents are more likely to unconditionally accept and support themselves when they're older. And then also modeling is a really important way to teach self-compassion. So maybe you're really compassionate to your kid and you never call them names and you let them know that you're there and supportive. <laughs> but when you drop a glass, you say, oh, I'm such an idiot. <laughs> Well, then you're modeling that, well, that's the way we're supposed to be with ourselves. We're supposed to, there's something good about being hard on ourselves. And we do have those messages in our society. We think that somehow being self-deprecating is like humble. We confuse it. Calling yourself names is not being humble. 
right? You know, humble is, okay, everyone's an imperfect human being. Self-compassion is humble. But calling yourself names, judging yourself, it actually doesn't help. And when you do that in front of your children, they do get that message that that's the way we're supposed to be. It's a good thing. Yeah. So in your book, you kind of outlined different emotions that are associated with tender self-compassion versus fierce self-compassion. Do you mind outlining those for us? Yeah. So for instance, self-compassion is what do I need right now? And when you're feeling some types of emotions, it's not a clear cut answer, but typically fierce and tender self-compassion work a little differently. So for instance, when you're feeling really hurt, when your feelings are really hurt or you're feeling shame, it's really helpful to have that tender self-acceptance, right? That feeling of you're okay, I accept you just the way you are, this will pass, kind of a calming, soothing energy. Or, or just when you're really distressed, it can help to calm down with that sense of gentle acceptance, like a mother holding her crying child, right? But other emotions are actually more in the service of fear, self-compassion, like anger in particular. I write a lot about anger in this book, partly because of my own journey with anger. You know, I just by genetics have a disposition toward reactive anger. You know, even though I'm not supposed to be, I'm here, I'm a mindfulness and compassion teacher. I'm supposed to be, you know, Ms. Zen all the time, but I'm not. I just, that's just my nature. And for years, I kind of tried to give myself compassion for it and accept it. And then at one point I realized, wait a second. Yeah, okay, of course, reactive anger can have a problem. It's not like I don't recognize that and try to control it if I'm hurting someone, but it's also a power source. So anger is a very useful energy. It it evolved to, first of all, it helps us be brave. It reduces the fear response. It energizes us. It focuses us. And that power source is really closely tied to all the things I've achieved in my life as well. And that's, again, the the fierce action-oriented side of compassion. So something like anger is in the service of self-compassion if it prevents harm. It's just when it starts to cause harm that it's no longer compassionate. And yes, the line is blurry, and and I'm not going to pretend that it's easy. But women especially, because we've been so socialized not to get angry or not to be too fierce or not to be too powerful, you know, we're, we're really taught we're not, we shouldn't be this way. And this harms women because it means we're only half human. We need to get angry. You know, look at social injustice or global warming. We need to be energized and focused and courageous in terms of how we take on these challenges. Again, just trying not to cross the line into actually harming anyone else in the process. Yeah, that part of the book really spoke to me because I don't know if I have a difficult time expressing anger because if, if somebody has wronged me, I'm able to communicate in a, in a, I do it in a very calm way, like talking in, like in the same type of tone that you and I are talking. But uh-huh. I also think that when I do that, people don't realize how upset and angry I actually am. And I've, uh-huh. I've been socialized because one of my family members, female family members has, is a complete hothead, like, blo- like uses anger to get her way, blows up at everybody. Yes. And I never yeah. want to be like that because I don't want to hurt yeah. somebody. So like, yes. what is an appropriate way to express anger and to have communication around your anger where people know that you're upset, but without like hurting somebody? Right. Yeah. So a lot of it is your focus is your focus on the behavior or the person, right? So the moment anger becomes personal, then it starts to be harmful. Now, it is true that if you're angry at a situation and it doesn't make it personal, people can still be frightened by it. So you do as much as possible want to try not to frighten people. On the other hand, I mean, there are different points of view on this. (laughs) But if you feel that you have, you know, you're angry, and as long as you aren't calling anyone names, you aren't harming someone, you're trying as much as possible to express it in a way that's not harmful, you can't really control other people's reactions to you. Right. It's part one of the big problems with women's anger is that people don't like us when we're angry and we want to be liked. And so we kind of start being inauthentic in order to get people to like us. So in a way, self-compassion can be a radical act. It might say, hey, I'm going to be true to what I feel, even if you don't like me for it. You know, and that that's a little scary, but that's part of where this leads if you're really true to yourself. And so it's a, it's a dance and it's not either or. And mm-hmm. You try to get balanced. You try not to harm people. But personally, if it works for you to express your anger super calmly and that's authentic for you, that that's great. Um, but if it's not authentic, 
you may play a little bit with what would it look like if you were authentically angry and you express the fact that you're angry, but again, try not to harm others. Yeah, by the way, I'm not oh, an anger expert. <laughs> I said, I'm not an anger expert. I'm someone who struggles with anger. So don't <laughs> also don't look to me for total advice. So I'm just saying, I really care about the issues because I know anger can be an expression of love because it means you care about something and that we, we can't forget that. Yeah. Like it's okay to get angry even, and especially if you're a woman and like you yes. said, in our society, like there's a, a gender construct that it's not okay to be angry. It's not okay to express if you're upset with something and th- like actually reading your book has helped me be a little bit more vocal about things that do upset me, not just in my personal life, but about social justice issues or, or just stereotyping against women and, and things like that. And it's yes. helped me feel like it's okay for me to say something and it's okay if people don't like it and don't like me because of it. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and that's a little scary, but when you're self-compassionate, you like yourself. And, and again, the, don't want to take any of these to an extreme. It's, it's also true, you know, that old saying, you attract more flies with sugar rather than vinegar. So you have to also be skillful and tactful and all those things also apply. (laughs) So it's complicated. I'm not going to pretend it's not complicated, but I think what needs to shift, especially for women, is that we need to be able to own our anger, right? Who is it? The woman who wrote A Rage Becomes Her, Sonia Jamali. She says, anger doesn't get in the way. Anger is our way. All we Mm. have to do is own it. So in other words, like the more we own our anger, the more we're less taken over by it. So what happens is we don't own our anger and we suppress it, we suppress it, and then it overtakes us. And then we just blow up and then we have no, we have no ability to try to, you know, mitigate its negative effects. But if we own it, I have the right to be angry. Anger is a natural emotion. It's a self-protective emotion. It's mama bear rising up to say, this is not okay. And then when you own it, there's more chance of being able to express it in a way that's actually effective. That makes me think of two things whenever you say that. Like, number one, I said just a second ago, like, well, people might not like me if I'm expressing my anger or my disagreement about something. But if focusing on self-esteem and not self-compassion, then you're you're too afraid to upset somebody because that actually could impact yes. your self-esteem and self-worth. Exactly. Versus if, yeah, you have that self-compassion, then it is okay for you to say something that isn't harmful on purpose to somebody else. You're not trying to attack somebody else, but just standing up for yourself. (laughs) And maybe that person doesn't like you anymore because of it, but you had to practice self-compassion for yourself to say, no, like it's not, I'm not going to be a doormat and it's not okay to treat me this way or treat other people this way. That's right. Yeah. And so for instance, not everyone likes me. I'm I'm actually a little more young than Yin and I've kind of accepted (laughs) that. You know, because it was more important to me is that I'm authentic to who I truly am, as opposed to being a people pleaser, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, but I, I also probably would make a lousy politician for that reason, especially if you're <laughs> a woman. And there is a double standard, right? Look at Brett Kavanaugh. He got angry and it got him elected to the Supreme Court. Whereas, um, you know, if a woman gets angry, it's like, oh, she's crazy. And so that is the reality. We can't pretend it's not there and we need to work with it. So, what the research shows is if a woman, are able to balance the fierceness with tenderness. Like maybe you stand up for yourself and really voice your opinion, but you immediately say, oh, how are your kids? So if you, if you consciously balance the fierce and the tender, people are more accepting of a woman's fierceness than if it's just fierce without no tenderness. And it's not fair because men don't have to do that. That is just the way things are. So it's just, a, it's good to be aware of what's happening, right? In terms of a lot of it's an inside job. Maybe you even decide, okay, maybe it worked. I can't express anger. It's going to get me fired. But you can at least know you're angry, right? Whether or not you express it, how you express it, no, that's a matter of skill and tact and all those things. But owning your anger, accepting yourself, even though you're angry, then that actually helps you be, whatever reaction you have, be more authentic. It sounds like just having mindfulness around anger. Like, what is this feeling in my body? Oh, this is anger that's popping up. And then learning not to feel shameful because of it. Yeah, and honoring it. That's the thing, honoring the anger, really. You know, again, so how you express it is a different matter, but honoring it, saying, thank you for protecting me. Thank you for caring about me. This is a form of love. This is a form of compassion. This is my mama bear who's rising up. That in and itself is really useful. Yeah. And I also think just like the anger piece is 
good insight into what value is being threatened. So you can actually use yes. the anger as a learning process instead of just like this thing that's just like, ah, there's so much anger in me. And I, I notice my anger, but whoa. Yeah, exactly. So what well, anger serves a really good communication function. I mean, evolutionarily, the reason it developed is it says something is wrong. So if you listen to your anger and what it has to tell you, what's not working in the situation, then you can learn from that and hopefully communicate that to others. Do you think that it is becoming more acceptable for women to be more fierce over the years? I think slowly. Yeah, I think a lot of our role models now are more fierce, like in the media, than they used to be. But there's st- there's still a pretty big bias against women's anger. If you look at the research, for instance, the idea that men are agentic and women are communal, which is basically women are tender, men are fierce, it hasn't changed in 30 years. And there's more acceptance of people breaking those gender norms. But what it, if you ask like which of these traits are associated with male versus female, that hasn't changed. Um, so that's that's kind of scary, right? Because a lot of these biases are unconscious. So for instance, and, and women do it just as much as men. And women don't like angry women or women who are too powerful or women who promote themselves and say, hey, I accomplished this. Because unconsciously, It's like, oh, that woman, she's really fierce. Oh, she must not be tender, which means she's not a good woman. I don't like her. And we do it to each other and we're totally unaware of it. Behavior should be totally acceptable in a man is unacceptable in a woman. And also the reverse, right? So we have to remember men are also harmed by the fact that they can't be tender. There's a reason only 15% of the people that show up to my workshops are men because men aren't allowed to think about things like self-compassion. Oh, that's soft. That's a girl thing. Even though self-compassion is one of the most powerful and effective coping resources we have available to us, men are cut off from this tool, this powerful tool, this resource because of gender role socialization. So it harms everyone. So how do we fix this? I know it's a big question and probably doesn't have an answer, but. (laughs) Yeah, it is a big, I think it has to start with ourselves. It has to start with us just saying, hey, I'm not going to accept this anymore. I'm not going to accept these limiting gender role stereotypes. I'm going to consciously honor my fierce and tender side. I'm going to try to balance them. I'm going to try to raise my kids to um, honor both. I'm going to try to accept it in other people. I'm going to try to be aware of my own unconscious biases. You know, that's really all we can do. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a place to start. And yeah. by the way, these things also apply to race. So all these unconscious biases and, you know, who's agentic and who's not, who's supposed to be helpful versus who's supposed to be in charge. We have to constantly be questioning, would I have the same reaction if it was someone else of a different race or gender? And if the answer is no, then we got to really think about that and what's going on here. Yeah, that requires a lot of personal responsibility. It does. Yeah. Uh, But I, I do think that the narrative and the dialogue, especially in the last two years, is opening up. There has been a lot of like really challenging things that have happened and really bad things that have happened. But yeah, I do see that there are some positive things coming out of that too. Yeah. Yeah. And so the whole social justice movement, I think self-compassion has a huge role to play, right? So in, in both sides of the equation. So for instance, if we're a victim of injustice, let's say my role is a woman, right? So I can see how I might be, be treated unfairly. Self-compassion, especially the fierce self-compassion helps us stand up for what's right. Um, But also like I'm a white woman, right? So exploring how my privilege, kind of being on the the side of the oppressor, my identity with being white, how that plays a role. And I think that's where tender self-compassion can be really useful because we don't want to face it. I mean, I'm not racist. What are you talking about? You know, it's like, so the shame is so intense that we don't feel strong enough to look at it. So we just like to just either turn away. It's not a problem. Everything's fine you know, or we get really reactive. And so to really own up to the pain of that, you need a lot of self-compassion remembering. Well, yeah, it's not me personally. It's part of a larger system. You know, Paul Gilbert has a great saying, it's not our fault, but it is our responsibility, right? And that's what self-compassion, we don't need to blame ourselves or hate ourselves because we're part of this unfair system, but we have to take responsibility. We have to be brave enough to try to see what's happening and then really be committed to trying to change it. Yeah, that comes back to, again, acceptance of self, but you don't have to accept the actions. Exactly, right. Exactly. Even and, if and they're maybe, your own actions. <laughs> yeah, like maybe you just did a microaggression, right? 
And yeah. you don't want to you don't want to admit you did microaggression if you if you're going to slam yourself. But if you can accept yourself, I'm still okay. But my microaggression wasn't okay. Then it's much more able to you know say, oh, I'm so sorry, or, do, or try to learn about it, or you know do whatever you need to do to try not to repeat it. So it's I think it's just really important this idea of fierce and tender self compassion both, as hopefully we're trying to you know move toward a little more equality in this world. Yeah. And like you said, for both sides, both genders, like both need to be able to access that and to try to balance perfect balance doesn't exist, but just the awareness and trying to trend in one direction or another, whichever way you need. Yeah. Self-compassion is a process. It's not about getting it right. It's about opening your heart. So we're going to get it wrong again and again and again. We just do our best and we keep on trying because it's really how we relate to failure that is the moment of self-compassion. It's not necessarily about getting it right. There is a a statistic in your book that really surprised me and correct me if I wrote it down wrong, but I read one fourth of women have experienced sexual assault. Yeah. Like that is a very high percentage. It's an incredibly high percentage. Yeah. And and most of those are from people we know, like a date or, you know, someone we're in a relationship with or a family member. Um, Yeah. It's, it's, it's horrific. I mean, and this is partly why I was so inspired to write this book, because I had my own experience with someone that I knew and I trusted who turned out to be a predator. I was so shocked and really just taken aback by because I had no idea, absolutely no idea. He was, well, actually, see, I say that. Actually, there were hints, but I didn't look at them because then I talk a lot about this, that women were socialized. Oh, that's just the way men are, kind of sweeping things under the rug, not really willing to look and see clearly because it's uncomfortable, right? And that's why women need to get angry. (laughs) We need to be fierce because it is so common. Sexual assault, sexual harassment is so common. And just think about it. For years and years and years, we just kind of accepted it. Well, that's just the way things are. And finally, we're saying, no, it's not, it's not okay. We're going to stand up. We're going to say no, and we aren't going to let this continue. But it's, again, it just takes a lot of awareness, a lot of a bravery, and a lot of willingness to take risks and say no, and just really voice when something's not okay. And by the way, I just have to say, I mean, it is messy, right? I think sometimes... Some people, maybe their behavior wasn't egregious and it gets misinterpreted and they say, we have to be careful. You know, one thing about fear self-compassion is if we aren't careful, it can slip into like self-righteousness. I'm right and you're wrong. And if it's truly compassionate, there also has to be an open-mindedness to it, a willingness to see, well, I think that's wrong, but I'm willing to reconsider if, if, if if other evidence comes to light. So it's it's a messy process. And again, I'm not I'm not someone with all the answers. I'm really about how self-compassion can help us through this really messy, difficult process. Yeah, and how conversations around this, how can exactly. we empower others to stand up for themselves? Because I, I I truly feel like with sexual assault and sexual harassment, you know, a lot of like I've experienced that myself, like especially in the workplace, you know, my background's in engineering and cycling. Those are both male dominated areas. And you don't want to speak up and say anything because you're afraid that there's going to be negative consequences. And there probably will be negative consequences if you do speak up. I mean, that is the thing. So there are negative consequences. And so is any particular woman, what she decides to do or not to do is really her own choice based on her circumstances. Like if you're going to lose your job and you got to feed your kids, you don't have, you can't speak up, but there may be something you can do. The really important thing is internally seeing it and acknowledging it and allowing yourself to be angry about it. The real danger comes when we just sweep it under the rug. We don't want, we just want to turn away because it's too uncomfortable and then things will just never change, right? But if you're aware of it and you allow yourself to be angry at it, about it and you don't internalize any of the messages, you know, it's not... I am not an object. You're treating me like an object, but I am not an object, right? And really just really standing up for yourself. Then there's more chance when there's a moment where maybe you can do something that's not going to have terrible consequences that you will. Yeah. Yeah. I think like differentiating between that and like learned helplessness is really important. 
Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Learn helplessness when you just feel, well, that's just the way things are. There's nothing I can do, which is really how women were with sexual harassment for years and years and years. And then finally it's changing. And the big, the reason they call it the Me Too movement and the reason I, it is a compassion movement. So compassion is inherently connected. It's not about me. It's about us. Right. Like the difference between pity and compassion, pity is poor you or poor me. Compassion is, wow, we're all in this together. And if you look at these social justice movements like Me Too or Black Lives Matter, they're collective movements. And part of our empowerment comes from recognizing I'm not an isolated individual. You know, I'm connected to many, many other people who are in a similar situation as I am. And so that's another reason why self-compassion can help. When you, when you remember, hey, I'm not alone. It's not just me. And the more people do start talking to each other and risk talking to each other and, and, you know, allow themselves to be vulnerable, you know, to people who it seems safe to be vulnerable with, the more empowered we'll be. We briefly touched on, you know, if you've done a microaggression, but can you talk about more specifically about Black Lives Matter and how this fear of self-compassion plays a role there? Yeah, you know, um, I'm not black, obviously, so I don't want to speak for people who are. But so, so my understanding is more from the perspective of a white person trying to come to terms with history of white privilege. But I do know, you know for instance, um, at the Center for Mindful Self Compassion, which is a nonprofit we started, an um, amazing black woman named um, Sydney Spears, who's really done a lot of work on how self-compassion can help in movements for social justice, kind of from the perspective of a black woman, which is slightly different. Um, but basically, if you just take the three components of self-compassion and it works every way, the first component is mindfulness, which is clarity, right? So in, the, in this situation, it's clarity. Being clear what's happening, right? Whether it's that I'm being treated unfairly or that I have an unconscious bias, I'm treating others unfairly, you know, Americans do not want to acknowledge what's happening in this country. We'd really rather stick our heads in the sand if we could get away with it, right? And by the way, clarity doesn't mean you necessarily know what's right. It's tricky. Because <laughs> you have to say, this is not okay. At the same time, you have to be open to understanding that you may not have the right view on the situation. So I'm not, I'm not pretending it's not challenging. But you need to be willing to look and investigate. So that's mindfulness. The second is common humanity, right? Remembering that everyone is a human being worthy of respect. So whether you're black or white, whether you're the oppressed or the oppressor, I mean, this is, I didn't come up with this, right? Look at Martin Luther King or Mahatma Gandhi, these great social justice movements. They got their strength from saying, these movements are based on compassion. We aren't gonna hate the people who have been oppressing us. They're human beings too. But nonetheless, human rights are intrinsic and everyone's rights need to be defended and stood up for, right? So that that common humanity piece is so important that it keeps it just from being us against them. We are all in this together. All human beings need to be treated with compassion and understanding, including people who are harming others, right? Uh, And then finally, the, the kindness. So kindness, you may think kindness, where does kindness come in? Well, kindness in the context of protection or social justice manifests as bravery and courage, right? This that quality of heart. So the quality of heart sometimes is tender, but why do they call it courage, you know, which is all about like a quality of heart. So being brave, being courageous, when you have that sense of, of kindness, it, um, it gives you the safety to take risks, right? The, the risk to speak up, for instance, or the, or the motivation to do something to stop harm. A firefighter who jumps into a burning building to save people, this is an act of courage and an act of kindness and an act of compassion. So that's more of the active quality that comes forth in, in these contexts. So I don't know if that helps explain it, but... <laughs> You know, again, it's it's all very complex. And I haven't even begun to talk about how power and equality and wealth and equality, and there's so much that goes into this. Um, so my, my, my agenda is actually quite humble, <laughs> which is really just to say that I, I really strongly believe that cultivating self-compassion, this sense of kindness, support, warmth, um, protection, motivation, meeting our needs, cultivating this quality can help us deal with the complexity of what's going on in our world today. Yeah. I mean, we're not going to be able to give people all the answers. Well, period. 
yeah. um, let alone. And my a- opinion is not nearly as, as sound as a lot of people who know a hell of a lot more than I do. Yeah. But I do know about self-compassion and I do know that it helps. So intentionally cultivating this quality can help give us the resources needed to take on these really big, challenging, complicated issues. Yeah. I like that you had like fierce compassion broken down as like protect, provide and motivate because that really helps. Like that, that brings up an energy whenever you even say those words. That that's right. Yeah. So compassion takes a different form depending on what type of suffering is present again. So sometimes what's needed is tenderness. Sometimes it's what's needed is to get angry. Sometimes what's needed is to say, sometimes what's needed is to say no, but sometimes what's needed is to say yes. So for instance, another way that women can struggle with self-compassion is we're socialized to, to be self-sacrificing. Others' needs come first. You know, people like a self-sacrificing woman. And by the way, don't think that that's by accident. <laughs> women are socialized to be self-sacrificing, so she'll also stay in her place, right? And raise the kids and meet the needs of the husband without wanting too much for herself. And so part of self-compassion is my needs count too not more than those of others, but at least as much as others. And then, so sometimes maybe I need to say no to you and yes to myself. Maybe I need to follow my dreams or, you know, take those dance classes of, of us or whatever it is that really, ask, really asking yourself what authentically fulfills me and being willing to spend time and energy and effort to meet your own needs. That's a really important part of self-compassion. Yeah. I think about that in, in relationships and even in my relationship, like my husband is, he's an awesome guy, very supportive of women. He runs his own business and in his executive team, he's the only man like he, but there's still just biases that exist that people, like we talked about that you don't even realize. And as, as women, like I will find myself because we, we have an almost two-year-old son. I'll find myself just like doing, I guess, people pleasing or just trying to make it everything as easy as possible for him, which makes me feel happy. But there are times where I realize, Hmm, like I probably should have stood up for myself and like, not that, not that I'm angry about it, but I just realized that I didn't put my needs first in a time where I probably should have. And it's not his job necessarily to, to recognize that it's my job because he doesn't, he might not even realize that that's happening. Right. So, and then that takes self-compassion when you realize that to not beat yourself up, to be like, Oh, well, why, like, why didn't I stand up for myself or why, why didn't I even realize this? Yeah. And of course, because we're socialized not to, right. And so, so much of this is gender role socialization. So it's a long process, but just awareness is the first really important step. Just that you're noticing it is huge. And then realizing that you have the right to speak up. Yeah. You know, that you're worthy of getting your needs met. And that maybe your husband will like you a little bit less in the moment when you speak up. And is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> you know, all within reason, of course. All of this is balance and you know. Yeah. But this 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 need for self-esteem, this need for people to like us, this idea that we aren't okay unless other people validate us and like us. It does a lot of damage. You know, if we really start to truly feel that I'm okay as I am. Yeah, maybe my behaviors need a little work, but I am okay as I am and I'm worthy as I am. And it's okay if other people don't like me because, you know, I like myself. That gives you a type of freedom that's really just amazing. I mean, I must say that, that is one thing I've gotten over the years with my self-compassion practices. I'm a, I'm a pretty authentic person. I don't, I'm not always tactful. And I would like to learn to be more tactful and that would probably help me, but I'm authentic, you know? <laughs> uh, and that's, that gives me a sense of freedom that I, I just cherish. I want to talk again about avoidance of difficult emotions. We, we talked specifically mm-hmm. about avoiding anger, but I think a lot of people do avoid difficult emotions and maybe don't oh, yeah. even realize they're doing it. Yes. Um, can you talk again about how that's so damaging and how people can actually be brave enough to feel those emotions and to accept those emotions without identifying with them? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, it's completely natural that we don't want to face difficult emotions. I mean, even an amoeba will move away from a toxin <laughs> in a petri dish, right? So this is the most natural biological reaction. And when something's negative or toxic, we want to get, get away from it. Unfortunately, what happens, especially for human beings, is if we feel a difficult emotion and we don't acknowledge it and we repress it, 
it actually just grows stronger. So either our body holds it, right? And it manifests as some sort of physical ailment or it like it gets suppressed and then it comes out and explodes at one point later, or we become depressed or the other extreme is we, we get lost in it and become really emotionally reactive and unstable, right? So all of these things are not the outcomes we want. So what we know is the more we can accept our difficult emotions, the less overwhelmed we are by them. Right. So we need to accept them and also support ourselves through them. So, for instance, let's say, um, well, COVID is a good example. So all the pressure and stress and trauma of COVID, what we know from the research is people with more self-compassion were less over, have been less overwhelmed by COVID, better able to cope with it. Why? OK, let's just take an example. OK, I am so tired of wearing this mask. OK, so you have that thought, you have that feeling. So you could just, um, you know, fight. I shouldn't have to wear this mask in this pandemic. And, blah, blah, blah. and then you store all that tension in your body and it's going to make you really stressed, right? Another approach to self-compassionate would be, approach would be, oh man, it sucks. I really don't want to wear my mask. But, you know, I need to because it's going to help keep me and others healthy. Okay, so kind of like, okay, so I'll put on the mask and it's uncomfortable, but like it's not as bad when you're there with yourself with warmth and support as opposed to just fighting against the situation or fighting against yourself. Right? So just little, little moments like that, as simple as having to put on that mask and the emotions that come up, you can either acknowledge them, accept them, giving yourself warmth and support because they're hard, and then you can keep going, or you can fight it, <laughs> or you can suppress it. And then unfortunately, it's not going to make mask wearing any easier. It's just going to make it a lot more uncomfortable and a lot more stressful than it would have been in the first place. Cause you still got to wear the mask, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> or you get COVID, whatever, but <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we won't go there, but you know, so, yeah. So what about like, there's the acceptance piece and then there's the reframing piece. So like you just told two different explanatory styles of what you could say yes. to yourself about the mask. Yeah. But yes. there's also the acceptance of that you fact that you don't want to wear the mask, you're, 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 you're tired of it or whatever the emotion is. Yeah. So like, where is the line where reframing becomes an avoidance of acceptance? Oh, right. So that's like, no, I like the term for that um, spiritual bypass, <laughs> right? So sometimes people like, um, so I like to say the only way out is through. So reframing can be very helpful when you reframe a situation so that it it's not that bad. I actually looked at it from this point of view. It actually makes sense. Okay. And that, and that's useful. Ref- cognitive reframing is useful, but if it's done to avoid feeling an emotion that has already been generated. So we don't control whether or not we feel emotions. We would like to think we do, but we don't. Emotions are just generated by this mind body process. We don't have a lot of control over or not whether we're feeling them. So if we use cognitive reframing so that we think, think we don't feel this way, but the emotion has actually been generated, like we really are feeling the shame or the pain or the fear, then that emotion is there and our body is feeling it. And so what can happen is if we don't acknowledge that, again, either it gets stored in the body as tension and that reframing is kind of a subtle form of resistance so that maybe what happens is when we're in a moment where we aren't cognitive aware enough to reframe that we might explode or it might lead to something like depression or it might, might intensify, you know, so cognitive reframing is good, but it should be done alongside allowing yourself to feel and accept your emotions, not as a way to avoid your emotions, but we're, we're really tricky. We're we're funky monkeys. I like to say, and we can, we can fool ourselves very easily if we aren't aware. So you got to kind of try to see what's, what's actually going on in my mind and heart. Yeah, there's a lot of mind-body connection uh, when it comes yes. to emotions. Absolutely. Can yeah. you talk about some of the self-compassion practices that actually connect that? Yeah, well, so all of this, whether they're difficult emotions or they're self-compassion, they're always interacting with the nervous system, for instance. So we've got you know, very simplified things. We've got two main nervous system reactions. We have sympathetic reactivity, which is the fight, fight, or freeze response. So when we get angry or upset, either at life or at ourselves, like it increases cortisol, it increases heart pressure, it can lead to things like heart attacks, right? So that's basically when we're agitated and stressed. 
but we also have what's called sympathetic nervous system reactivity, which is kind of the, the more related to the relaxation response, the care response, where we increase in heart rate variability, our cortisol levels go down, we feel safe and we feel connected to others. So self-compassion, so self-criticism, which is the opposite of self-compassion, activates sympathetic response. Self-compassion actually calms us down physiologically. It increases heart rate variability, it lowers cortisol. So this is just happening when we do this emotionally. But one of the ways to practice self-compassion that taps into this is through physical touch. Um, because as human beings, physical touch is one of the primary ways we communicate care to others, like to a loved one or to an to a infant. When you give yourself touch, like touching your face or putting your hands on your heart or holding yourself, in other words, when we kind of drop into our bodies out of our heads, um, it really communicates the sense of care in, in many ways, a more direct and powerful way. We're actually working directly on our physiology. Um, and it, it is touchy-feely, I admit it, but for a reason. It's because there's, it's scientifically valid to use the system that's going to make the most immediate impact, which is on your physiology. Yeah, so I noticed like in your book, you gave special areas like the heart and the solar plexus. Can you yes. talk more about those areas and how you came to those? Yeah, well, and people are different, right? So people respond to touch very differently. In general, I found that most people tend to find the heart area a good place to touch if you want to, to give yourself tender compassion, right? Because our heart, is, we feel a lot of that, that pain and the love, which has a tender quality. The solar plexus, which is about two inches below your rib cage, it's like your energetic center. So for instance, in martial arts, a lot of times they talk about finding your center, which is your energetic center. This can be really good for this um, centering yourself so that you can take action. You know, So sometimes putting your hands on your solar plexus can be good if you want to kind of ground and stabilize yourself so you can feel this fierce energy. But everyone really is different. So we tell people, find a touch that works for you, which feels supportive. For instance, some people, for fierce self-compassion, they like putting fist on their heart with a hand over it, like, you know, strength with love. That can be a nice integrative type of touch, you know, folding your arms, the power pose, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like it can be a fierce self-compassion pose. It's really just whatever works. There's no scientific support that one type of touch engenders one type of compassion more than the other. That's just my observations. Yeah. It sounds like you just have to pay attention to your own body and where you feel exactly. things. Yeah. Exactly. I noticed personally, like I was excited when you said solar plexus, because in a lot of the meditation practices I've done, where it's like, you're trying to focus on your body, they'll say like, put one hand on your belly and one hand on your heart. But yeah. I feel like almost all of my emotion in my solar plexus Yes, your belly, which is actually below that. So the belly yeah. is actually not such a good place, especially because a lot of us have judgments about our belly. Yeah. So the solar plexus, which is about, yeah, a few inches above the belly button, your energetic center, I find more helpful. But, you know, I, it just depends on who you are. Are there <laughs> any like journaling practices you recommend for self-compassion? Yeah, so we have a practice called the self-compassionate letter, which can be very effective. Actually, one study found that if you write yourself a self-compassionate letter for seven days straight, it reduces depression for three months and increases happiness for six months, which is a pretty good bang for your buck. Um, and so basically, a self-compassion letter is um, you think of something that you're struggling with. And well, usually the reason you write a self-compassion letter is because something's troubling you. And you write yourself a letter with the three components of self-compassion. So the first is mindfulness. So this would just be kind of validating. This is really hard. This hurt. This is what I'm feeling. Kind of turning toward it as opposed to suppressing it. But also with some balance. You aren't lost in it. You aren't drowning in the difficult emotion. You've got some perspective. Say, oh, this is really hard for you right now. Right? So really validating it. And then common humanity, reminding yourself that you aren't alone. There's nothing wrong with you for feeling this or for having a situation like this happen. All people are imperfect. All people live imperfect lives. We know that logically, but we forget. So just reminding yourself that you aren't alone, very huge. And then words of kindness, which might be the type of thing you would say to a good friend you cared about who was going through the same situation. So, and again, you have to play with it to find out what feels comfortable for you. So I'm comfortable on using terms of endearment, you know, I'm so sorry, sweetheart. You know, I'm so sorry you're going through this. I'm here for you. You know, I love you just the way you are. Other people that may feel a little too sappy, they might just 
you use some other sort of language, but the idea is the language is warm, supportive, and encouraging as opposed to like judgmental. And then if you do that, it can really dramatically change how you're able to cope with the difficult situation you're experiencing. I've also found like in there's all these different great meditation apps out there. And then there's lots of different instructors that talk about self-compassion uh-huh. and there's both male and female uh, instructors that, that do that. Uh-huh. And everybody's approach is different. So for the men yes. listening, like it, it actually might be helpful to listen to um, more like masculine leaning or identifying meditation uh-huh. instructors, because they might be able to give you language or, or just or women who yes. don't like the ooey gooey part, like yeah, finding, exactly. yeah, finding more of like language that, that resonates with you because you have to find what works for you. And exactly. I have to say for me that like the ooey gooey stuff, I don't, I don't like that, but for me, like just saying it's okay, it's really basic, Yes, but like, yeah, it's a, and then practicing okay. it. Yeah. yeah. And like a lot of people listening, um, they, they ride bikes or they're runners and there's a lot of judgment that happens whenever you're out there, if things aren't going well, yes. you know, and, and instead of going down the rabbit hole of I suck, I, it's like just saying it's okay. Or, or whatever it is, or I'm sorry, sweetie, or like, it's okay, sweet, whatever it is that works for you and finding yeah. that language. Or I got your back or something like that. Yeah. Get through this or we'll learn and grow, you know? Yeah. So on my website, I have a lot of both fierce self-compassion practices, which are much more kind of that powerful energy. And they've got tender ones. I'm Chris Germer, who's my colleague who developed some mindful self-compassion program with me. He has a website. Uh, Dan Harris, uh, who's a very well-known, he he did the app 10% Happier. He's all about self-compassion now. I was on a show a few years ago and he was like kind of skeptical and now he's he's bought into it. So his new book's going to be about self-compassion. So there are a lot of voices out there, which is great. Yeah, I'm a big Dan Harris fan. And I actually heard that episode that you yeah. guys recorded. And yeah, I mean, one of his books is Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. And yeah, yeah, he's, yeah, it's really interesting to hear his journey. And I'm excited about that book. Yeah, yeah. So I, I have one more question. It's it's actually about working with Chris Germer because he also is working as your as your partner, right? Is that the right word or your colleague? Well, I call it, yeah, he's not my romantic partner, but yeah, he's, he's like one of my partner. best friends and yeah, yeah. My, my work husband, you might call him or something. Yeah. 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 In, in the business. Yeah. Your book, the recent book was kind of fierce self-compassion for women. Like, did he have any role when you were writing this book and giving his perspective? Yeah. Well, so we, we developed a lot of these ideas together. We had actually started, we, we used to call, we, first we talked it, about it as the yin and yang of self-compassion because it's related to gender, but you don't want to gender them because that's the whole problem is that we gender these things. So we, we, mm-hmm. we talked about yin and yang as a way of getting away from terms like masculine and feminine. And so we developed some of the ideas together. I decided to write, he probably wouldn't have written the book for women only, right? I think mm-hmm. in some ways, I think he's glad I did, but he would write a very different book about fierce and tender self-compassion coming from a man's perspective. So yeah, he, his his insights have been great, uh, but, but he's we kind of joke. I'm more young than yin, and he's more yin than yang. So <laughs> just because you identify as a particular gender doesn't mean that you identify with the gender stereotypes of that gender, right? right. So then, you know, people, and then again, you put gender identity into it. Maybe you're socialized as a man, but you identify as being a woman. And then your gender social role socialization really didn't match who you feel you are, but it doesn't match who anyone, who anyone is because people aren't just one way. They're both right anyway. But yeah, so that that's been really great. And, and he's helped me a lot, but it is, it is written for women because the blocks are different for women than they are for men. Men feel entitled to meet their own needs. Women don't. Men are allowed to get angry and to speak up for themselves. Women are socialized not to do that. Men don't, especially white men, don't face the same sorts of prejudices that women do. So it's it's a different experience. What one of the things that's happening with self-compassion teaching and research is it's starting to become more instead of being just general, one size fits all, it's starting to get more nuanced. So for instance, we have affinity groups for people like the LGBTQ plus community. They, they might have a, a self-compassion group because the issues, the types of suffering are different if that's your experience or if you're a person of color 
or if you're not physically able in some way. Think, you know, so so in other words, the as the type of suffering differs, when you come together in a group as a community to practice around the shared type of suffering, it can be really, really powerful. And it's gonna look different. The language you use, the examples you use, how you approach it's gonna be different depending on what the situation is. And that's really exciting, I think. Yeah, like it must be really freeing for people, athletes, you know, all, all people. Yeah, to know right. that athletes it looks different. Athletes, healthcare providers, you know, teachers. Yeah. It's, it's different. So that that's what really what's happening now, which is I'm just so excited about. I think it'll really help strengthen self compassion practice when it becomes specific and not just general. Can you give your website and some pla- and, and any other places people can find some of these resources? Yes. Yeah, so if you Google self-compassion, you'll find my website. I have um, a self-compassion test you can take. I have about, I think about 20 different practices, both fierce and tender. I have a lot of uh, research on there, hundreds of research articles. If you're a research and interested, <laughs> I was about to say nerd, but if you're interested in research, um, I've got videos. Uh, that's really a good place to start. And then I also link from my website to the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion, which is the place to get training. If you want to take, you can take, for instance, a 10-week online mindful self-compassion course online through the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion. So that's probably the best place to start. Well, thanks so much for your time and for all of the energy and effort that you've put out into the world because it really has made a massive difference. And there's the ripple effect of that is just profound. So thank you so much. And thank yeah, you. it was my honor to get to chat with you. Thanks. It's been a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed that episode and make sure to check out her book, Fierce Self-Compassion, because I thought that it was a really helpful book to read as a female, but also just as a person who tends to be a people pleaser and who doesn't like to express negative emotions or express anger. And it's really helped me find my voice in certain situations where I've needed it. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to share it on social media. It's always so fun for the guests and myself to see what resonated with you and to hear what you are liking about the show. I hope you learned something new today. And as always, I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. See you next week.